One of my favorite films is called Life is Beautiful. Roberto Bernini, the Italian director, starred in it. He's also a comedian. It came out in the late 1990s. And if you ever watch this film, it is incredibly fascinating from many points of view. From storytelling, for instance. Here's the main character. He's a bit of a clown. He's passionate. He's got the confidence inside that can buttress all of his clowning and passionate nature because that, that confidence comes from the fact that he has needs and wants and they're amongst the same things. You see, in good storytelling, usually the hero has a desire, a, a set of wants, and then along the course of the story, we find out those wants are not good. And that the hero, the hero or heroine takes on needs and there's the big story arc that makes Hollywood blockbuster films. But in this film, you have something different. His needs and his wants are the same, and they're good, making him an in incredibly wise character. What's his need? What's his want? Love. Love, and not just a romantic tryst, but he, he wants to love a beautiful woman. He wants to love children. He wants to love his village. He wants to love life around him. He wants to love play. He wants to love laughter. He wants to love the world in such a way that says, yes, there is still always something beautiful to behold about this life. And it gives him confidence. And so for the first half of the film. You see, the film is also broken down into two acts. Most movies are in three. This isn't the kind of thing that gets you an Oscar, although it won one. The first act of the film, he is practicing that wild love and passion and, and, and clowning all around the community, wooing the heart of a woman, and then having a small child that he just, he just enchants the boy's world. A daddy who enchants his son by playing games and make-believe and magic. He makes him see just beyond the veil of the mundane to realize that life isn't mundane, but it's teeming with meaning. It is enchanted, dare I say, graced. And then we broach the second act of the film. You see, he's Italian, but he's also Jewish. And this is set when the Nazis come into town and start collecting Jewish people into concentration camps. The mom has to go to one aspect of the camp, the father and son have to go to another, and there you see it in its grim reality and all. You, you, you see the star of David marked on them, those who are Jewish. You, you see uh, pink triangles for homosexuals. You, you see all the sorts of ways that humans have done a mighty fine job of categorizing other people to otherize them, to then hate them. Oh, we're very, very efficient in death camps. And the main character wonders, how can I help my son not suffer in a concentration camp? So he pulls on his old bag of tricks, and he makes a game out of it. It's a game that rules are set to protect the boy. It's a game that will protect him from saying things that will get him in trouble with the Nazis, like, I'm hungry. It's a game meant to keep the boy's spirits lifted. And whenever the dad's around, though he suffers the fate of the concentration camp and all the indignities and all the f evil that's just right there on display, 
when he sees his son, he smiles and he plays a game and he clowns with him and he delights in him and he still enchants the boy. As you walk with the characters toward the end of the film, the son has been trained to hide out if anything occurs in this little box with this little, this little kind of, almost like a mail slot. And there's some running amok happening in the concentration camp. People are trying to get out. The, the, the allies are coming and there's all kinds of uh, uh, people rounding up the Jews and others who have been in that camp for some time. The dad sends his boy to hide out. And as he's trying to find a way through all these uh, guns and peering eyes, the dad gets found out. And a Nazi soldier puts him at gunpoint right to his back and he tells him to go that way. And as he's walking, the dad goes, he looks over here and he can see the place where his boy is hiding. And his boy's eyes lock on his dad's. And he giggles because his dad, his dad's always got a game. And the dad, played by Roberto Bernini, looks at the son and goes, because in that moment, when the darkest of the dark is about to befall the man's fate, he thought, how can I help free my son? I'm going to play my game. So he winks at his boy, and his boy giggles, and the Nazi soldier, with anger, tells him to go that way, and Roberto Bernini's character begins walking in a really funny way, like a clown. And his boy is laughing. And he marches that way right until his end. And off camera, he's killed. Having given a profound existential gift to his son, Showing him that right on the abyss, that in the ugliness, that in all the ways humanity can be evil to one another, there's still beauty in the world. And there's still something worth loving. Surprised I didn't cry telling you that story. This movie makes me cry. It, it hits me really deep. It's a story that percolates to my mind as I read this passage this morning from St. Matthew's Gospel. See there, Jesus is teaching his disciples like he's wont to do. He's been doing acts of mercy as this window depicts. He's gained a lot of popularity. This past week as the staff and I read this text together, one of the staff members said, you know what would be really great is if you titled this sermon, The Chosen. I think Sarah Brasington, our family life director, could see that I didn't know what she was connecting the dots with. I'm like, uh-huh, okay. Why? She goes, well, you've been, you've been doing sermon series where you've been talking about different television programs. You know, Ted Lasso last week, and then you did a whole thing on, 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 on Bob Ross, the painter. Now, it'd be nice to do The Chosen. I go, and The Chosen is what? She goes, you're kidding me. Reverend Ginolette looks at me and goes, dude, it's got a big following, bro. And so I'm like, what is this thing? It's a Jesus show. It's a Jesus TV. Like a, it's like a, a serial show. It depicts the life of Jesus. And, and, and I'll have to confess to you, I'm not a curmudgeon, but I don't really watch Jesus films very often or television shows. And it's not because I assume they're going to be bad. No, it's 
simply that in my own faith life, I've seen plenty of them. And what happens in my prayer life sometimes, or in my meditations and my contemplations, is that when I imagine Jesus, I begin seeing the faces of actors that I know. And I just don't want that. I'm into scriptures deeply. I like art about Jesus, but I just, you know, I just don't do it. So she goes, you have to watch this show. I mean, people love this whole thing. So she sends me a clip, and it's this whole story. There's Jesus sitting down rather nonchalantly with his disciples. And it imagines like the real world inner workings of these conversations. He goes, hey guys, I got a plan for you, a strategy. I want you to go out two by two out into the communities. I don't want you to go to the Samaritans. I don't want you going to the Gentiles. Now, uh, these are the foreigners. I want you to stay with our own people. And I want you to tell them the good news about the kingdom of God. And then I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to cast demons out of people who are possessed by the demons. I want you to help cure leprosy. And along the way, very comedically, one of the disciples raises his hand and goes, you want us to heal the sick? And then Jesus is like, yeah, and also I don't want you to take payment for it. And if you go to people and they don't listen to you, knock the dust off your feet and then come back to me. And then he's done with his teaching. He's done with his instruction. And in that moment, the same disciple raises their hand and says, uh, so you want us to heal the sick? as if they were incredulous to the task. Well, that makes some sense, but as a, as a viewer of this, I thought to myself, you want them to cast out demons? That seems a bit more scary to me. Uh, Jesus, can I ask you about the demon bit, please? Or how about raising from the dead? Okay, well, I got a few questions. Hmm. The chosen. The Chosen depicts this story, and it's an interesting one because when Jesus is doing here is he's not offering the Great Commission. We know the Great Commission. This is, this is like for the whole world. And we know that the gospel ends with the gospel actually going to all the corners of the known world. That's part of the point. And so why does Jesus do this bit? For, forgive the language. Why is his mission a bit fast and dirty, incomplete? It's like he's saying to the People. Go get the early adopters. Get the people who will catch on and move on. Don't stick around too long. And, and also stick with our people. Don't, now, don't go over there to the Samaritans. I'm convinced that many of us need to get our heads removed from the Bible to read it freshly. When you would read that, you might be tempted to think that Jesus is being racist. Who are the Samaritans? Well, they had some blood like ours, and then they don't on others. And so a lot of Jews didn't like Samaritans and vice versa. And now Jesus is saying, don't, don't go over there. Or xenophobic, don't, don't, don't go to the, to the Gentile world. What, what, what's this about? What is Jesus doing? Well, it seems as though Jesus is being very quick. He needs to get the ground and soil ready for the rest of the message. So he sends them out in a very incomplete fashion to preach this good news. Now, for those of you who grew up in church in Sunday school class, when I say the word good news, you might remember what that's translated from, from another word. Can you say it out loud? What's the word for good news? Gospel. Now, an entire master's thesis could be written on how the concept of gospel as it is applied to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is a completely new construction 
for using that word for this kind of literature. There's a lot to be said about it. But yes, gospel means good news. And Jesus says, you need to get out there and preach the gospel. The good news, get out there and get the early adopters. Be ready. And it's at this point where I'm given pause. Because what's the gospel? What is this good news about? It seems to me that over the years we have used other words and metaphors and phrases to help get our mind around it, but often to the point of diluting its meaning. If you go hang out with some people who are part of a really strong Reformed church, there's a lot to be said for the phrase justification by faith. That the good news of Jesus is about being made right, justified, it's legalese. I am justified before God because of my faith or because of the faith of Jesus. It depends on which way you want to interpret it. But, but I'm made right legally before God because of what Jesus has done. Or my faith's been a part of it. Or Jesus' faith's been a part of it. And we argue over this and denominations are formed and broken apart because of this. But Jesus never says anything about being justified by faith, ever. As I went on in my own faith journey, I had a lot of other experiences. I went to a, a church gala one time, one of these, uh, they call them pageants. It was, a, it was an Easter pageant, one of these big churches. They put it on, there's, they crucify Jesus, there's donkeys. It's, a, it's an entirely large affair. And at the very end, the pastor gets up and says, if the message of Jesus has pricked your heart tonight, I want you to respond. And, and I gotta be honest, I always responded because when I was a boy, I just wanted to be good with God. So if you told me to come down to the altar and pray, I would come down and pray, even though I had been a committed Christian. If you said, let's go get baptized, I might say, well, this is my fourth time, but let's go do it again. That part's a joke. I only did twice. So I'm sitting there in this large, like, venue. I don't even know what to call it. A coliseum seems like a bad choice of words. Anyway sitting there, and I am moved by the play, and I want to be good with God, so he told us all to close our eyes and bow our heads. And he said, if we wanted to know Jesus Christ, we had to say a prayer and then raise our hands, and this is coming from the book of Second Jude. There is no Second Jude, but nevertheless, I wanted to be good with God, so I raised my hand, if you want to know Jesus Christ, and he, I'd hear the pastor go around the room and say, it's good I see your hand. You're saved. You're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I see your hand. And I wasn't sure if he saw my hand or was talking about my hand or someone else's hand, so I left my hand up for a really long time. I almost heard the pastor say, you can put your hand down, son. You must have done a lot of sinning this week. Just because I was mischievous, I also peeked around a little bit to see who else was holding up their hands. And later on, I asked about that meeting of my youth minister, and he said something that was really well-intended. He said, well, you know, that, that gospel message he's preaching, he wants to know if you would like Jesus to live in your heart. I have to be honest with you, I don't even know what that means. It's not a biblical phrase. Jesus doesn't utter it. Does that mean that somehow Jesus occupies my emotions? Or is it deeper than that? Is that just really kind of poetic language to say that Jesus occupies the center of me? That, that sounds interesting. 
Well, let me stop short and say this. We as Christians believe that whatever God has done to us and for us through Jesus, it is justifying us, making us right. And it is that God wants to live near us. And in the words of Jesus himself, I abide in you and you will abide in me. Yes. It is a saving act of Christ that we really scarcely understand. But we are given as a gift. But it's actually kind of plain when we read Jesus' words what Jesus thought the gospel, the good news was. It's in this passage, repeated over and over and over. Hurry, go out into the world and tell people the good news of the kingdom of God. Go tell people the good news. It's good news that God's kingdom, God's ways, God's rule, God's authority, God's reign is coming to bear upon our world. Go tell people that where the world is unjust, God is going to bring justice. Go tell people where they are broken, God is going to bring God's kingdom, God's ways to repair the brokenness. Go tell people where they are lost, last, lonely, that God wants to invite them in and, fi and fill them up and, 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 and hold them in his divine embrace. Go tell people the good news that God's rule and reign is coming to bear in a world that tries to rule and reign itself. kingdom of God is political. Why is it political? Because it's about how we organize people, and that's always political. It's about how we think about each other. That's, that's always political. It's about justice, and that's political. It always is, but I know that bothers us. can't tell you how many times I've heard it said, Pastor, I don't really like it when politics enters the church. What do we mean by that? I take it to mean at the very best that that means that you or whoever is saying it doesn't like partisan politics that we have here in our own world. And you'd, you'd be happy to kind of put that in its place because the kingdom of God isn't about elephants or rhinoceroses. It isn't about blue and red. In fact, both really miss the mark. And if you're standing with God and God's kingdom, you really ought to, like, criticize the world that we live in. But it's not what God wants. And neither imagination is what God wants. But what really I think people mean is, preacher, I don't like it when you say things that I take to be against my politics. Oh, oftentimes... I feel as though if I were to say something quote-unquote political and people agreed, I won't hear about it. Well, that's the messy world we live in. Jesus tells them to do something rather political. Go out in the world and tell them there's a new king. Stands over the monarch, stands over the constitution, stands over uh, democratic voting, stands over human rights, stands over everything. There's, there's a new way, and it's God's way, and God's coming to bring his goodness and his glory to the world and invites all of us. No matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done or what you will do, God invites you to come and sup with him at the table of the kingdom. What accompanies the message of the kingdom here in this, in this mission that Jesus gives? Well, raise the dead, heal the sick, be with the lepers. 
exorcise the demons. I don't know how you hear those things, but here's what I hear. And I think it teaches us about the very heart of God. I hear that God is interested in freeing us from all the things that hold us bondage. I hear that God wants to release the shackles, the things that we are shackled by, and there are shackles and snares aplenty in this world. We willfully give ourselves to them, and sometimes we trip and stumble into them, but God wants to release you from the shackles of bondage, of things that do not give life, and God wants you to have life to the full. So here's the problem. That story of freedom... That story of liberation is a powerful one, and it's literally being sold everywhere. And everywhere you see it happen, it moves people in the innermost places. This week, we will remember Juneteenth. I don't know how you understand Juneteenth, but it brings me great shame to realize that we went through an Emancipation Proclamation, a civil war, all done, only to then many, 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 many moons later have someone show up in Texas to start telling people who were still enslaved, although legally not slaves, that they had been set free. Now that, that, that should cause some real movement of your soul that that happened. But if you can even muster the imagination to put your shoes or your feet in the other shoes and think about what it must be like to have your entire life, your generations of life that you have, only known to be under the, under the aegis of another, under the authority of another, never being able to make a decision for yourself about your home or your family or your life or your work, and then to be told, you are now free. able to breathe. These liberation stories are powerful. I was once working in a restaurant with a young woman who's a Christian. Let me tell you, she had 10 measures of the Holy Spirit to my one. That means to say you'd probably prefer to hear from her than from me, and you'd be well suited to hear from her than from me. She came in one day, and she, she was rather downtrodden. She she thought she was going to get all the support from her home congregation. And instead, when she declared she would like to be a preacher, they told her the women couldn't preach. It broke her spirit so something awful. She was even thinking about leaving the church altogether. And then she found another church and came back another day. A couple months later, she said, it's like I have a new lease on life. They don't even just let me preach. They want me to preach. It's like I am who I was meant to be. All these stories of liberation are powerful. I don't know what you think of it, but I'll tell you one about my friend who's gay. I grew up with him in school, and it was kind of clear that he was gay since he was in the first grade. Never really fit in any of the boxes that, we were, made for him, that were made for him or that we put him in. I think his dad and his grandfather and his uncle is a really, really strong male-centered uh, family he came from. I think they made even homophobic references, which made him very afraid to ever talk about it. 
I wasn't any help. I'll be very blunt. I was too young and naive and uneducated. And oh, I didn't have any good psychology. I didn't have anything. I just had a friend. Years later, I was scrolling through uh, some social media and I saw him and, you know, he seems to be thriving in life. And so I reached out to him and, and I said, wait, what's going on? You, you, look, you look happy. He said, he goes, just that he finally sat down to tell his daddy. That's why he called him his daddy. I said, how'd it go? He said, he looked me in the eyes and he said, I don't care who you love. I'll never stop loving you. Just like that, a weight, a weight had been lifted in this person's life. I know as I say that, there's a lot of different interpretations about what I believe about such things or whatnot. Here's what I'm telling you. The good news of the gospel is meant to set us free. And if people don't find that freedom, if people don't see that the, what shackles them can be loosed in church, they're going to find it somewhere. In fact, that's the thing that, that hurts me the most. I can't go one week watching the news cycle and not hear about how people have been, rather than loosed and freed up for the goodness of God in church, but rather to be hurt by it. To find it as a place to go, to look, to look right, to act right, to, to feel judged if you're not looking and acting appropriately. And then to say, I don't need that in my life. I'm messy. My life's messy. <laughs> and I hear that and I cry. I cry because you know who loved my mess? Christ loved my mess. He wants to free me. He wants to loose me for love. He wants to give me a world that is still beautiful. He wants me for his very own. That's what the church is called to be. So I think about my one of my favorite movies, Life is Beautiful, and I think about a father who would take his son and go to such great lengths that his son would not think that life was defined by the uglinesses and the evils and the pain that we cause one another. But that there is something to love. That beauty, that beauty is still there in the dark places. And he left his son with an inheritance, a joy, a lightness of being, a grace that will make no mistake, lighten the world for another. Friends, that's what the gospel has come here for. I invite you all to come and be part of Peachtree Christian Church. I invite you watching, come be a part of Peachtree Christian Church and sit on the pews with us weird ones. Sit in the pews with all of our stories. Sit in pews with people you may not agree with on every little thing. Sit in pews. Be with each other in song over difficulties, but embrace each other nonetheless. Meet each other at the table nonetheless. Help make each other whole. We're called to help free each other by lifting them up to the throne of God, revealed in Jesus Christ, who has made a way for us. 
not only to be saved, but to live a life abundantly.